It's just a few minutes after five. Tonight we're, this is the second in a, what will probably be, uh, be a series that goes on after the summer, which we're calling God, Marriage and Family. And as you can see on the screen, our topic this evening is addressed specifically to ladies. And so I'm glad to be able to call on a lady to deal with this topic. And I even managed to get my first choice lady speaker which is Megan. So in a moment, I'm going to hand over to her. But first, I just want to pray. Father, we realize that each of us is in a different situation in life. Our circumstances are unique. And you call all of us to be faithful in those circumstances, whatever they are, to be faithful to you. And we pray this afternoon that you'll help Megan as she speaks about what it means to be faithful as a woman. I pray you'll help us all as we think about this and as we seek all of us to submit ourselves to your word on this. So we ask for your help and blessing on our time this afternoon. Amen. that working? Is that going to work? Okay. Well, tonight, like Tim said, we are trying to think biblically about God's calling for us as women. And obviously, Tim asked me to talk about this. I think he thought it might be better if a woman talked to women about being a woman. Um, So I'm still hopefully learning myself how to think biblically about this. And I'll welcome any questions or comments that you might have, unless they're from Alan Boynton, because he told me he was going to heckle. So... (laughs) Um, Obviously, there's going to be a lot more that could be said, um, but because of time, we'll have to limit it. Um, But feel free to raise anything afterwards if you'd like. And of course, um, we all want what we say tonight to be informed by and conformed to Scripture. And so broadly speaking, I've just organized the topic under these categories. First, we're just going to look at, as women, who are we, both the creation and the curse, And then women at home, which is a context that most women will find themselves in at some point in life. And then, just briefly, women on their own, the topic of singleness for women. And I'm only going to touch on that very briefly because I think at some point in the future, Tim's planning an entire evening on singleness. Um, And then finally, we've decided that because the topic is very broad, we're going to look at women in the church next time because there's an awful lot that you can say about that as well. And just before we get started, a quick word of caution to us as ladies. Some of what we find, at least what I find, when I come to scripture on this topic unsettles us. And some of it, the passages might make us annoyed or even angry. And some of them just don't seem fair because we're so conditioned by our culture around us. But what I want to caution us is not to dismiss what we read just because we feel that way. Often when we come to scripture, we're challenged by it, and often we find ourselves rebelling against some of what we read. So don't think that this proves that scripture is outdated on this topic if we don't like it immediately. 
And don't think it's proving that God has gotten something wrong. It doesn't prove that God is unjust. It simply proves that our minds are actually tainted by sinful rebellion in this area of what it is to be a woman, as our minds are tainted in every area. And so we really need to return to Scripture to have our minds renewed as we think about this. Elizabeth Actemeyer puts it like this. She says, Scripture has been assembled and handed down to us. It contains words that stand over against us and judge us, and we have to come to terms with it. So we can't allow the experiences that we have as women to have authority over Scripture. We have to allow Scripture to have authority over our experiences as women. So we'll quickly begin with looking at who we are as women. And the obvious place to begin is with creation. And I know to many of us this is very, very familiar, so I just want to draw out a few points about what we are created to be as women. And the first thing that we notice when we look at the biblical account of God's good creation is that it affirms the equal value and dignity of men and women. So notice just real quickly a couple of the passages with me. Genesis 1.27 tells us God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So it's very, very clear from the beginning that God created men and women equally in his image. Neither one is superior and neither one is inferior. And notice also when we go to the accounts of God creating Adam and Eve individually, let's see what those say. When God's creating Adam, the Bible reads, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Then when he creates Eve, we read, Then the Lord God made or formed a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So in both of those accounts, both the creation of the man and the creation of the woman, God is actually personally involved in forming the man and the woman. And he takes the same care in forming each one of them. So creation and scripture are affirming the equal value and the equal dignity of both men and women. And this is really important now because society often accuses the church of undervaluing women. Now, some churches may undervalue women, but scripture clearly does not. So we see that it affirms equal value of men and women. And the second thing we can see in the biblical account of God's good creation is that it affirms full participation in God's world for both men and women. So let's look again at Genesis 1, which we just looked at. In Genesis 1, 28 and 29, it says, God blessed them, that's the man and the woman, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant and every tree, they will be yours for food. So notice that that blessing that God gives is given both to the man and the woman. And actually that command to rule over creation is given to both the man and the woman. They are actually co-regents under God's authority. And then finally, the nourishment that God provided in the garden was given jointly to the man and to the woman. 
So we can see from scripture and specifically from that creation account that God is affirming the equal value and dignity of men and women and affirming full participation in God's world for both men and women. Neither one of us are second-class citizens. However, that's not all we can say about men and women just from the biblical creation account. We also see that the biblical account of God's good creation affirms different roles for men and women. And I want to be clear, this is not actually a result of the fall or the curse. The different roles are present at the very beginning of God's good creation. And we see these roles at work in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 before the fall takes place. So it's not just a result of sin. So let's take a look then at Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. We'll notice that when God decides to create Eve, she is made specifically as a helper suitable for Adam. And then in verse 22, she is brought to Adam given to Adam as his helper, and Adam is given the responsibility of naming her. And naming at that time would have implied his authority or his leadership over her. So in these early chapters of scripture, before the fall, Adam is given a leadership role over his wife Eve, and Eve is given the role of a helper to her husband Adam. And then later in Genesis chapter 3, Adam names his wife Eve specifically indicating another one of her roles, the role of mother or nurturer. And what I want us to know is, please get this, these are just different roles, they're different responsibilities, if you will. One of these is not more inherently valuable than the other. In fact, the Holy Spirit himself, who, remember, is one of the fully God persons of the Trinity, is referred to as helper. So this is not a lesser role. It's just a different role. Neither men or women are independent of each other. Neither are inferior and neither are superior. We are actually both co-dependents on God. And Paul affirms that again in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So if this is who we are created to be as women with different roles, at least in the home, why do we wrestle with it so much? Why do we struggle sometimes with being helpers and not the boss? And maybe I'm the only one here who has that struggle. (laughs) But it seems to me that if we look around in society, and often if we look around in our homes and in the church, we can see living proof that we as women are discontent with our places as helpers and as mothers and nurturers sometimes. And we're constantly struggling to overthrow authority in our lives. 
So what is going on? Why is this happening? Well, we see if we read on to Genesis 3 that we're not just a product of God's good creation, we are also a product of the fall. So we are a mixed race, if you will. And since the fall, we are affected by God's curse. And it's the fall and the curse which has upended God's good order and created so much tension between male and female relationships throughout all the centuries. And this is what God says to Eve in the curse after the fall. Let's take a look. To the woman, he, God, said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And the part of the verse that I particularly want us to notice is this second half of the verse. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What does that mean? What is going on here? And I first um, heard this from Don Carson. He pointed this out. Um, The only other place in scripture where that particular turn of phrase is used, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, is in the very next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. God is speaking to Cain when Cain is angry at God's rejection of his offering. And here's what God warns Cain. He says, sin is crouching at your door. Here's the phrase. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So when we look at that, we can understand that God is warning Cain that sin wants to have him. Sin wants to take over him. But he has to rule over it. And in order to rule over it, he's got to crush it. He's got to rule it harshly so that he can rid himself of this sin. So, okay, we can see that, but what does it have to do with Eve's curse? Well, remember, this is the same turn of phrase that is used when God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So God's curse is this. Eve is going to constantly want to overthrow her husband's authority and take over. She'll want to take over to rule her husband, And how is Adam going to respond to this? He's going to rule her harshly. Instead of using his position of authority for good, he will respond by ruling her harshly. He will rule over her, but no longer in a godly way. This is the curse. So the fall and the curse have affected all of us, actually, male and female, at the core of our being. They've disrupted the order that God created that was good and have turned it on its head, It's turned God's good order of authority into something that we as women are constantly trying to shove away and throw off, and that a lot of men use to dominate and treat their wives inappropriately. So, who are we as women? We are part of God's good creation. We're made in his image, we have equal value, and we're granted full participation in God's world with men as co-regents. We're created for a role of helper and nurturer in many ways. And many times, because we're created for this, we actually gravitate toward it naturally. But other times, our fallenness and the curse is exhibited because we are discontent with these God-given roles. So we long to be in control of our own destinies, to choose our roles for ourselves, to usurp authority. And especially, we might say, well, sometimes the authority is badly used, and that might be right. But sometimes we even seek to overthrow good and God-given authority. And this is part of who we are, apart from the redeeming mercy of Jesus. 
but thank God for that redeeming mercy. Because when we turn to the New Testament, we see God in Jesus calling us to a restored order. He calls us to a restored order in the home and in the church, and he promises to give us the power of his Holy Spirit to help us live not as we're inclined to live in our fallenness, but as we're created to live in his goodness. So we're going to look first at restoring God's order for women in the home. Now many women, although not all, will be called by God at some point to be a wife. And we saw a moment ago that curse formula that was pronounced by God to Eve, where wives will desire to rule their husbands, and husbands will rule over their wives harshly. But now, in the New Testament, in Colossians 3, we see what Wayne Grudem calls the reversal. In other words, the reversal of the curse. God's call to husbands and wives in Christ and in the church is this. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. And to the husbands, Paul says, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Isn't that beautiful? That's God's call to us, to restore and to show the world the goodness of his created order. Joyful, willing submission to God-given authority on the part of us as wives. And for the husband's part, that authority being used not harshly, but for the good and service of his wife. And there are parallels to this passage in Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3. But rather than look them all up, for the sake of time, I'll just mention a couple of things regarding this submission that those of us are wives are called to. First of all, submission. This is not a call for all women to submit to all men or be subordinate to all men. This is a call from the New Testament for a wife to submit to her own husband. And I think too often in some cultures or sometimes, male headship has been presented as all women being subject to all men. And sometimes that has done a lot of damage. Um, And I don't believe that that's actually how the biblical text is presenting this biblical authority. Because actually, in scripture, all women and all men are under authority. In fact, there is only one time in scripture where a woman is under any more authority than a man. And that is in the case of her marriage, where a woman submits in marriage to the authority of her own husband. In every other case in scripture, the authority structures for men and for women are the same. Both equally submit to God. Both equally submit to their parents while they're in their home. Both are under the authority of the rulers of their countries. And both are under the authority of the elders of the church. So the call here in the Bible for submission is specifically for a wife to submit to her own husband. And the second thing that we read was Paul wrote, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Or in Ephesians, he puts it, as to the Lord. Now those phrases are not putting our husbands in place of the Lord. Rather, the submission that we're to show to our husbands, we do as an act of submission to the Lord. So because of that, we can say, if you are asked to submit to something or participate in something that is displeasing to the Lord or harmful, then the higher call to you is to obey God rather than your husband. We would not participate in something harmful or displeasing to the Lord as an act of submission to the Lord. So with that in mind, here are some things that biblical submission is not. 
First of all, I don't think biblical submission is a wife who is a passive doormat and who just gets walked on. That's not what the Bible presents as biblical submission. Secondly, it's not a wife who leaves her brain at the door, a wife who can't think. It's not a wife who doesn't have her own opinions or who can't respectfully share those opinions with her husband. In fact, we have to be discerning and thinking as women because, as we stated a moment ago, we have to be able to discern if what we're being asked to participate in or submit to is appropriate or inappropriate for a woman who fears the Lord. So biblical submission does not require being a doormat or being unable to think for ourselves. Biblical submission is also not a wife who is just browbeaten by her husband and dragged off into something and whose heart really isn't in it. And it's also not a wife who will give in, but only grudgingly and after a lot of nagging. That's not biblical submission either. And obviously, biblical submission is not a wife like this one who is a usurper and uh, never ever gives in no matter what and always insists on her own way. These things are not um, what the Bible is intending when it talks about submission. Instead, when the Bible speaks about a wife's submission, it's talking about voluntary, willful, and joyful submission to the God-given authority of our own husbands. Sometimes this will involve obedience. But I think first and foremost, it's actually a heart attitude. It's a posture that we take as wives when we're interacting with our husbands. So what do I mean by that? Well, first, it's voluntary. So if you're here and you're a husband, you may be able to make your wife subservient, but you can't make her submissive, actually, because biblical submission is voluntary. Secondly, it's willful. In other words, it's intentional. We as wives make our decisions to interact with a posture of of respect. It's not thrust upon us. It's something we do with our own will. And it's joyful. We don't do this bitterly or grudgingly, but we do it because we're happy to please our Heavenly Father by showing respect for our husbands and for their decisions so long as they are not harmful or ungodly. And this kind of biblical submission is actually the kind of submission that's present in God himself. Because this is the way that Jesus, who remember is equal to his father, submits to the authority of his father. And it's important to note that the father's authority over Jesus isn't based on some special wisdom or special gifts or special ability that the father has and the son doesn't have. No, Jesus and his father are one. So the authority of the Father and the submission of the Son are just simply there in Scripture. And Jesus doesn't turn around and say, that's not fair, because he's in the role of submission and not the role of authority. Rather, he says, I delight to do your will, O God. So I think in the same way, when God asks us as wives to submit to our husband's authority, It's not because necessarily that our husband has some special wisdom or gifts or ability that we don't have. In fact, some wives may be more gifted or more clever than some husbands. But the authority structure is simply the order that God has set up. And it's an order that reflects the order that's within the Godhead himself. So if we don't like this, then we really don't like God because this is part of who he is. 
So rather than us focusing on it's not fair, which I think, if we're honest, most of us sometimes think deeply in our hearts, our response should be, we delight to do your will, O God. And notice we aren't delighting to do our husband's will. They're not in the place of God. We already said that. We're delighting to do the will of our Father in heaven by submitting to his order of authority. And that's why we submit to our husband's authority. Now, I know that there will be some of you here tonight who are thinking, okay, that's nice, but what about me? My husband isn't a believer. God has set up this great reversal of the curse that we're called to, wives to submit willingly and husbands to love without ruling harshly, but my husband isn't interested in any of this. So what does the Bible say to me? So the question really is, how do you relate to an unbelieving husband? Do you submit to a husband who is not a believer? And this one's very difficult and calls for wisdom in every case, but I believe that First Peter gives us an answer to this. Peter writes, wives, in the same way. And the way that he's speaking about, that he's just spoken of, is as the same way as Jesus, who didn't retaliate, but who entrusted himself to God, who judges justly. So wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word... They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So Peter doesn't actually let us out of God's created authority structure simply because our spouse isn't a believer. We are still called to submit to a husband's authority by having a heart of respect for him because it is a God-given authority. Now, we are also called to submit to ruling authorities, and those may or may not be biblical or Christian or good authorities in this world. And I think if our husbands are unbelievers, we can see them in a similar light. So what does that look like then? How do you submit to an unbelieving husband? I think we show respect for their position of authority as an act of submission to God. Again, if we're asked to participate in or submit to something that's harmful or ungodly, we refuse, the same way that we would refuse a government who asked us to do something that's opposed to God. We obey God rather than our husband or our ruling authorities. But our general posture normally toward our husbands should be one of respect for his position and support for him as our husband. And we should exhibit voluntary, willful, and joyful submission to his authority in the hopes that if he doesn't believe the word, he might be won over without words by our behavior. I know there's loads more that you could say on that issue, and it is a very difficult one, and each situation is going to look slightly different and call for wisdom, but for the sake of time, we'll leave it there for now, and feel free to ask any questions later if you want to on that. And just before we move on, I just want to say one quick word on a really difficult subject for a lot of women in our world today, and that is what about abuse? Um, This is really a whole topic in and of itself, and we're not really trying to deal with it here, but I don't think you can talk about women without bringing it up, Um, because I do feel that one thing needs to be clarified for women. Unfortunately, many women, and possibly some of you here, have been victims of abuse whether that is physical or sexual or psychological. And even more sadly, there are times that these very words of Scripture about God's good order 
in the home have been used to justify or excuse the abuse of a woman. And if you are one of these women, or if you know one of these women, then there's one thing that I want you to hear very clearly if you don't hear anything else tonight. And that is this. God's word never justifies or excuses or allows for the abuse of a woman. Never. He never justifies, excuses, or allows for the abuse of a woman. Our God is the defender of the defenseless and the vulnerable. And these words that are written about submission were written directly to us as women. They were penned to us to address the posture of our own hearts. They were not addressed to men to be used as weapons to suppress their wives. Paul didn't write, he could have, but he didn't, write, husbands, make sure that your wives submit to you. He wrote to us to address our own hearts. So if you're a victim of abuse or you know someone who is, then first get out and get to safety. And then from a position of safety, you can seek godly help and counsel for your own specific situation. Well, we've looked at one role of a woman in the home, the role of a wife. And the next passage we'll look at highlights again how we were created um, to be helpers and nurturers. But because of the fall and the curse... We often need help to reclaim a biblical perspective on these roles. So in addition to submission to our own husbands, the New Testament calls us to care for and order our households well. Paul writes this to Titus in Titus chapter 2. He says, Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Well, first in that passage, Paul addresses the way we live if we're older. And this could be relative to the people around you, so you may actually be older at the age of 30 than you think you are. Perhaps if we're honest... We're not too shocked that he addresses slander or overindulgence because those can sometimes be a pitfall for us all. Um, But Paul wants the older women instead to fill their time not with gossip or overindulgence, but with teaching what is good. So ladies, here's a challenge for us. What are we doing to fill our time with teaching and instructing and challenging those who are younger or younger in the faith than we are? And how are we learning and growing ourselves so that we'll be able to teach those who are younger than us? This is our challenge from Paul. And then comes the part that in my sinfulness I'm not too fond of, if I'm perfectly honest. Paul tells the older women what to teach. And it isn't to teach the younger women systematic theology or how to lead a Bible study. Although all of these things are fantastic, we're very capable of learning them and we should learn them too. But here, what Paul tells the older women to train the younger women is this, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands. Does anybody else find that a little bit hard to handle sometimes? Yeah? (laughs) As if the only thing we can do is be busy at home doing the washing and the cooking and the cleaning, and as if we needed any special training in that. And don't we all naturally love our children? 
So what is going on here? Why is Paul saying this? I think the answer is that once again, Paul is putting his finger on our hearts. Because of the fall and the curse which we saw before, it is actually not as natural for us to love our husbands and children well as we think it is. And at times, if we're honest, we desire to be busy in just about any other place than to the neglect of our homes and our children and our husbands. We can have a tendency to want to throw off those good God-given roles and run off to something that the world values and esteems as more important or more exciting or more self-fulfilling. After all, it's not exciting to change dirty nappies. I mean, maybe someone finds it exciting, but I don't. Um, We don't get paid for our work in the home. We don't have any chances for career advancement in the home. We don't get applause, I'm assuming. And uh, in fact, our government policies today are actively encouraging and rewarding women not to stay home and raise their families. So this is the society that we're in. So Paul gets it. He knows that this work that we're called to is actually hard and that it feels unfulfilling at times. He knows that we're tempted to put all sorts of other things, even good things, ahead of our calling to be godly wives and mothers. And he's affirming that this is a high and privileged calling. So he encourages us, train each other in this. It doesn't come as naturally as we like to think. Train each other to love our husbands and our children well, to be busy at home ordering our households, to be kind, to be subject to our husbands to live this calling out. And if that isn't enough to challenge us, Paul then goes on and broadens out this scope for us in our homes. We're called to submit to our own husbands, to care for and order our households well. And now, whether you're married or you're single, we're called to care for our elderly relatives. And Paul tells us this in 1 Timothy He says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. So Paul here is telling us that our God-given responsibilities as women don't end with our husbands and children if you have them. In fact, we are given another responsibility together with our spouse or families, and that is the responsibility of caring for our parents at the other end of life. And as many of you know from personal experience, I think this is especially hard. When you're raising children, they're constantly growing more independent, we hope. But when you're caring for elderly parents, they're constantly growing more dependent. And there is no denying it. This is hard. And it's inconvenient. It interrupts our plans. Just when you think you're getting some time back for yourself, retirement, empty nest, you can go back to work, all of a sudden you have new charges to care for. But Paul actually gives us zero wiggle room on this one. What does he say? He says, 
Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And notice again, he doesn't put the first burden for this work on the church. For believing women, the first burden of care goes to them so that the church can help those who don't have any help. And I don't think this is saying that the church has no duty to support people who are carers. It's difficult work and it does require support. But it does mean that as Christian women, we can't pass off the responsibilities of care for our families, whether that's our husbands, our children, or our parents, insisting that, well, really, it's not our job. We have another job, and the church is failing our family. Biblically, in these verses, Paul is saying it is our job. So this is the restored order that God calls women to in the home. And I know possibly some people are having the question going through their heads, okay, but is this all that a Christian wife and mother can do? Is she restricted to only household duties? Are we allowed to pursue work outside the home? And does the Bible even talk about that? I believe indirectly it kind of does. First, remember, no marriage and no family is going to look exactly the same. I know that. I don't homeschool my children. My mother did. So already there's a difference. And every season of life is going to look different for each of us. Our life with an infant is going to be very different from our life with teenagers, so they tell me. I haven't got teenagers yet, but... Um, The Bible gives us principles, and we have to work them out, along with our own husbands, in each unique situation. But I believe that the Proverbs 31 woman is instructive here. Proverbs 31 describes the wife of noble character in great detail... And I just want to pull out a couple of pertinent things for you. It says this, She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. So notice, she's a businesswoman. She has earnings of her own and she's involved in trade. And yet, with all of this, she does not leave undone the responsibilities that we just looked at in Scripture. Here's how she relates to her husband. It says her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. And she watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. And she provides food and clothing for her family. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. And she still manages to share with those in need. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. And she speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. And what is God's verdict over her life with all of this? It's this. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Now, I don't think these verses are here to make us despair, because we aren't as brilliant as this woman. I think many of us immediately go to that reaction, don't we? But I do think that this passage is here to give us a picture of the types of activities that godly women are involved in. And it may not be that a woman is involved in all of these different things at the same point in life. Remember, there are seasons to life, and we're not superwomen. 
And we have to apply these passages to our own situations and our own time with a lot of prayer and in cooperation with our own husbands. But what I do think is that when we put all of these passages together, we can say this about a wife working outside the home. There is flexibility in scripture, and there is scope for that kind of work, even for a woman who's a wife and a mother. However, if we choose to marry and have children, then our work outside the home, biblically, I think, must not prevent us from fulfilling the primary callings in the New Testament that we see here. Submission to our husbands, care for and ordering our households, and care for our elderly relatives. If our work outside the home is preventing us from fulfilling these responsibilities lined out in Scripture, then I think we should rethink our work rather than rethinking our biblical responsibilities in the home. And this is going to be very hard and completely radical and backwards to the way much of society encourages us to think. Society says to us today, find your personally fulfilling career role and then fit your family around it so you can have it all. Scripture says to us, find your fulfillment in Christ. Use your giftedness first to fulfill these roles that I've given you in the home. And then you are free in Christ to use your giftedness to serve in other areas as well. We've spoken at length about women in the home. And of course, so far, I've been ignoring the elephant in the room. The obvious question is, what about me as a woman if I am single? And this is actually very relevant to all of us, because in case you hadn't noticed, every single one of us starts out our adult life as single adults, hopefully, and over half of us will finish our adult lives as single adults as well. And out of that number, there will be some, and perhaps many, who will never marry for any number of reasons. I'm not going to deal with this much at all, because Tim is planning again that there will be a whole evening on the subject of singleness. But I just wanted to mention how a woman's singleness relates to the issue of biblical authority and roles. We spoke about authority structures in the home. And if you're a single woman, you might be thinking, well, what authority am I under since I have no husband? So about that, I would repeat what we said a little bit ago. Remember in the Bible, all women and all men are under authority. And there's only that one time that a woman is under any more authority than a man, and that is in the case of her marriage. So all the rest of the time, men and women both under God's authority, their parents if they're at home, the rulers of their countries, and the elders of the church. So if you're an unmarried woman, then the same authority structures apply to you that apply to men. God, the ruling authorities, and the elders of the church. Now, as to roles, whether or not God has given you a husband, you are equally created a woman. And God created us with giftedness in the roles of helpers and nurturers. And throughout scripture, we see women presented on their own using their gifts to be helpers and nurturers. In Mark chapter 15, we read of women who followed Christ and cared for his needs. It says this, in Galilee, these women who are now watching the crucifixion had followed him, Jesus, and cared for his needs. So here are the ultimate helpers. In the absence of a husband to care for, they cared for Christ. And we also read of spiritual mothers 
not just physical mothers. Paul speaks in Romans 16 of the mother of Rufus, and he says, who has been a mother to me, too. And along those same lines, I was struck at the induction of Steve a few weeks back. A couple of people who'd greatly influenced his life were present, and among the most influential were his pastor and two single women who'd taught him the gospel and discipled him. And those women had no husbands or children of their own, but they had that God-given nature of a nurturer, and they had the God-given time to pour into Steve and to others in serving the Lord. And it had a profound impact and effect. And so I think single women have much freedom in Christ to use their gifts in a variety of ways, both in the church and in the world and in the workforce. In Acts chapter 16, we read of a woman named Lydia. She was a businesswoman in Philippi. She used her gifts in her business, and she used her resources and her influence to advance the gospel, and she opened her home to the apostles. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes this, An unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So scripture values singleness. And Paul argues that singleness can provide the freedom and the time to serve and to use our gifts in a way that is not open to married women at many times. But I also know that while scripture says that singleness can bring blessing, it can also be very hard and at times very lonely. So finally, scripture is clear that even if you are single or lonely in your home context, you are never alone Psalm 68 says this, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. And I know that some of you are lonely. And that's part of what we as the church are, is a family. So singleness is valued in scripture, and we should value it too in the church. So let's thank God for our single sisters and brothers, and let's support them and be their family. So now you're probably tired of hearing me speak, (laughs) and I'm happy for questions, comments, or deep thoughts if you have any, and if they're hard, I'll give them to Tim or Steve. I've beaten everyone into silence. (laughs) 